I watched a friend put a, an elbow back in place. Someone dislocated their elbow and I watched, I watched that happen. I knew it was possible that you could do a field um, reduction, but this was like three people holding and tugging and, yeah. and here I am out, I'm out on the trail all by myself. And then, so the, the third piece of information I had that, that would help me would be the, le the movie Lethal Weapon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to Stand Up Pedal Action. Okay, everyone. We have some firsts on the show today. We've had nothing but fun guests, and Josh and I have had a blast with everybody that we've had in the studio. But today, I believe, after firsts of having kids and doctors and professional athletes in different levels in here, today we've got not only our first Canadian on the show, we also have our first guest who has been both to Cambridge and Burning Man. Not only is today's guest probably one of the unsung heroes of Colorado Springs mountain biking, he's a fantastically interesting individual that we're super excited to talk with. Today, we have somebody who takes no dig, no ride to a whole nother level. From Medicine Wheel, we've got Corey Sutella. How's it going, eh? <laughs> <laughs> of course, you were waiting for that. <laughs> Corey, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. I'm real excited to be here. Thanks for having me on, the, on uh, Stand Up Pedal Action. Yeah. We're honored. We are Absolutely, honored. Absolutely, yeah. This has been a long time coming. Yeah, we've been working on it and got our schedules <laughs> together and uh, appreciate the chance to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We are super excited to talk to you more about trail advocacy and what you guys do over at Medicine Wheel, especially because as biking in the springs becomes a bigger and bigger thing and as more and more people move here, come here to ride, hear about our trails. That's only getting more important. However, before we get to that, right here, like Josh always says, it's always about the humans behind the headlines. So <laughs> we'd love to know more about who you are, where you came from, other than just the Great White North. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Sylvan Lake in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, and it's really got into cycling, I guess, when I was in high school. And have been involved in all all different kinds of cycling throughout, you know, most of my adult life. Okay, so for those of us who don't know, how far north in Alberta is that? Uh, you know, most of us live within about 100 miles of the border. So, right, yeah, um, you're all sneaking down there right on the line. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're like two and a half hours from the border of, okay, cool. of Montana. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, mostly uh, cross-country skiing and canoeing. Yeah, and that's what I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, western, uh, eastern slopes of the Rockies. Kind of like here, but a lot colder and longer winters. <laughs> and so cycling came along in high school, yep. presumably in your brief summers, unless, because that was before fat biking was a thing, at least oh, yeah. down here. Yep. Um, yeah, it was, it was a summer thing. I had some friends that were into it and um, really got involved with the, the Central Alberta Bicycle Club. And that's where I think my, uh, my interest in zany adventures really started was with, with that crew there in Alberta. Mm -hmm. So any that come to mind in particular when you say zany adventures? <laughs> yeah, I was, you know, thinking back to prepare for this show. Um, I, I can remember multiple trips. I mean, there were no maps. There were obviously no trail forks or anything. There was barely anybody mountain biking. And um, I remember spending an afternoon carrying my bike on my shoulder, kind of post-holing through uh, half-frozen sloughs trying to figure out if there was a road on the other side of this ridge um the <laughs> definite type type two adventures right from the gun there um because yeah you guys up there in canada there's also angrier bears in your woods and all kinds of things that make just wandering out into the forest a bit of a different game than it is here yeah i mean you know try not to try not to surprise the bears but they're <laughs> definitely out there i uh, i've been followed by bears i wouldn't say chased um there was a, there was one epic trip where, uh, this is a good one, where we had uh, rid ridden our bikes up as high as we could, stashed our bikes in the trees, and then did a, uh, a summit ascent of, can't remember the mountain we were doing in, just down in British Columbia. Um, and when we got back down from climbing, a bear had taken a very large interest in my bicycle seat. And so there were <laughs> teeth marks through, <laughs> completely through the saddle and the saddle was turned around in the frame. There was definitely no question it was a bear. There's a lot of good jokes about why the bear chose my saddle and, and not my friends. <laughs> yeah, the bears are out there. Yeah. And so for you, was cycling, was it more about 
the adventure than any kind of racing or community aspect? Or like, what was it that grabbed you and took it from just, hey, I've got a bike like any other kid to, oh, this is the thing I'm going to make a part of my life? Yeah, I think I think really for me, it was the the social part of it um, that drew me really in. I mean, I have always liked to race. I've never been very good at it. I like I like to finish races. So there's been a lot of races I've been in where I am the dead, dead last finisher. And I take <laughs> a lot of pride in that. But I really like to be out. Um, you know, there's the the connection to the outdoors and the feeling of, of weightlessness and freedom, the dynamic movements, but the chance to be hanging out with friends and, and talking about things you love. Um, you know, I did a lot of track racing when I was in Alberta in, in the short summer season. And a big reason was tr- track racing is just such a social sport. Yeah. Really enjoyed that. Is this, is this running or cycling track? Uh, cycling track racing. Okay. Yep. You guys had a drone at a velodrome up there? Yeah. No way. Yeah, concrete, concrete velodrome. Ooh, <laughs> that sounds even more frightening than the wood kind. Yeah, they can be, yeah, they're slippery. <laughs> Don't ride them in the snow. <laughs> that sounds like the voice of experience, but maybe you tried that. Um, uh, no, I will not admit to ride, <laughs> riding on the concrete track in the snow. I will not admit to that. <laughs> Nor to having ever known anyone who might have tried. Right. No. <laughs> Strange things happen on outdoor tracks late at night, right? in Canada in the in, long winters. Yeah, I was going to say, I just hear that strange things happen in long winters. <laughs> All right. So from Alberta, though, your education took you a bit abroad. Yep. Yeah, I got an engineering degree in Alberta. I worked mm-hmm. in the oil and gas industry for a few years. I've fracked a lot of wells, so I could <laughs> get into that if you want. Oh, boy. Um, and then I got an opportunity to study in Cambridge in England to do a PhD in engineering and uh, just was at the right opportunity at the right time. So I moved to England and got into uh, thermal fluids and uh, automotive emissions research. And for those who who can't see, because of course it's a podcast, Corey is actually the first guest to ever bring, well, to have a PhD thesis and he brought it. It's actually here. Well, I bet Michael Brothers has got one. Oh, he probably does. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's actually a thesis sitting over here right in the blanket fort right now. Um, Because people never believe me. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite the experience. It's really show and tell here this morning. Yeah. I I wish we could share more of this with you. So how do you go from, well, first of all, what drew you to that kind of work? Was it just the opportunity? Like, just like, hey, it's a job. The oil industry is a thing up here. Yeah. In, in Alberta, where where I grew up that at that, especially at that time was really, you know, that's, that was the industry to get into. And mm-hmm. I think all, all of us, you know, we've got a little bit of an environmental um, outlook, but living in Alberta, it's really like, that's the supply side. Um, my, the, the development of my environmental views are, we got to work on the demand side, but if you can get a, at that time, if you get a good job on the supply side, I mean, that, that was the, that was a good engineering job to have. And mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. Again, it was really, it was really neat working with all the people that I worked with. One of my jobs was meeting with landowners and, and meeting with the public to talk about plans for future development and, you know, what, what was allowed and what wasn't allowed and what the, the process was to go through that. And it's uh, something that's kind of helped me in my job now. <laughs> yeah. So before we get to your job now, fill me in yeah. a little more on that, because there's a lot of people who, if I told them, we're talking to a guy who does trail advocacy and works with a forestry service and does a lot of work in trying to get people out into nature. Oh yeah. And he was in fracking, like that would break <laughs> people's brains. So what was the mindset up there at the time or how did those two things that many people would see as diametrically opposed, the petroleum industry and the outdoor industry, how do those work together? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just so much part of the, the context and culture. It, mm-hmm. It's the economy of the entire province. And so I mean, to, to me, it didn't seem like a dichotomy at the time. It's sort of now as I step back and not living right in that, in that culture. Um, yeah, the enthusiasm for the oil industry, it just wouldn't go down in a lot of places, but it, it really is a thing in, in Alberta yeah. where it was. And, uh, you know, we've been through all these booms and busts. It's this, this real cyclic nature. And, you know, that's, that's happened all over, all over Western U.S. as well. Yeah, I was going to say it's a uh, still a pressing concern here in Colorado, especially on the western slopes. There's a lot more oil and gas exploration that some people think should be done and others really, really don't. Yeah. And, and you know, I keep saying if you don't want it to be done, then let's work on the demand side. Let's, you know, stop taking your car everywhere. Let's start living more sustainably. And then there won't be a market 
Um, I don't, I don't think oil companies are evil. They are making money according to the rules that have been provided to them. And it's rules that we as a society have chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it or not, this is the world we live in. I drove my car over here today. Yep. Sh- shame to admit, <laughs> um, <clears throat> you know, so, um, at least in my mind, that's how, that's how I, d- uh, rationalized it. But, you know, climate change is going to take all of us making real personal sacrifices yeah. and definitely at that time i'm like well that sacrifice doesn't include me not getting a sweet job at an oil company <laughs> well it's, it's clear that you've had a passion for the environment even from the the very beginnings of this as you pointed out in your your phd thesis, thesis yeah. right here the the quote um what what was your quote uh, well, so the, the the context of the thesis was how we can reduce automotive emissions. And the final line of the thesis was, well, we could reduce automotive emissions to zero by taking a bicycle instead of a car. My, written, my written thesis advisor did not like that as much, but I left it in anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, you've got the picture in there to boot. <laughs> yep. And yep. years later, because how this was what year? That you actually finished your thesis? We don't want to out you, but we will. <laughs> 2001, I finished my PhD thesis. Okay, so not bad. Um, <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> we'll leave some ambiguity in there of how long you spent before you started the PhD. So um, so from 2001 to now, 20 years on, Yeah. how do you feel about what you said then and how the world has or has not progressed in getting more people on bikes? Yeah, you know, I'm 20 years later, I'm deeply, deeply involved in helping get more people on bikes. And so I'm... I'm, I, I see it from a different lens, but you know, even, I mean, even at, I guess I feel the same. Yeah. Um, th- there really is an opportunity for us to, you know, I live in Manitou and, and what I'm always saying is if we can show people how to visit Manitou, cause they're coming, mm-hmm. people are coming here. You're not going to stop people from coming here. If we can show them how to visit in a way that doesn't negatively impact the residents and, uh, you know, doesn't result in congestion and allows them to become free of their cars and visit the places that they want to go it's better for everybody, the, the yeah. visitors and the residents. Um, so I think it's a really big opportunity. I think it's more and more becoming a necessity. Gas prices are going up. We have to think differently about how we move people around. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot more attention on that now. Um, and that's that's gratifying to see. Yeah. So I'm, I'm personally interested. How do you feel about bikes on the incline? <laughs> <laughs> this not being the most practical form of transportation with bikes. You know, that new, the new Northern route just makes that so tantalizing, right? Cause uh-huh. <laughs> it's quite easy to ride up to, to part way up. And, uh, um, I'm, I don't think bikes, I think bikes are allowed on the incline. I don't, or I don't think they're not allowed. <clears throat> yeah. Um, <laughs> well, now that we're all allowed on it, technically. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep. Uh-huh. Uh, I don't have a strong feeling one way or another. If I'm going to advocate for bike trails, it's not probably going to be just like uh, the incline, but hey, if, <laughs> no, if you want to do you. it, I think it's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair I enough. have a friend Thank who claims you. he rode the whole thing top to bottom on a full suspension mountain bike. I haven't seen it. Rode back down the incline? Rode down the steps. Oh, you got to have a special hatred for your that. wrists uh, and knees to try that. That seems like a poor choice. Yes, I was talking <laughs> more about taking the bike up the incline to then visit the rest of the trails. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's not a bad idea. There's there was a family that used to um, always carry their unicycles. They would they'd hike the incline with unicycles and then ride down Bar Trail. On <laughs> you, like, a family. I, yeah, there was three of them. I think a dad and his kids. <laughs> spacing on their names, but uh. that has become my favorite route of getting into Manitou is is cycling into town because parking has has become such an ordeal in different areas. Yeah, and Manitou's not far. It's, yeah, and and getting better. You know, we got the the completion of the Adams Crossing. Um, it's not perfect, but there are like actually legitimate, reasonably safe ways that you can get in and out of Manitou now. Yeah. So before we get to the trails yep. too much, yep. let's move, let's move back to, so we've got you from Alberta yep. to Cambridge, uh-huh. which was a career decision more or less. And then what happened? Yeah. So I finished up my degree and there were a lot of sort of opportunities, um, the automotive industry was mm-hmm. was definitely available although i'm just really not that into cars even though that was with my yeah my how did stand- you end up with that thesis then yeah well, that's a good story too and I'm, I'm kind of a go with the flow kind of person so <laughs> no pun intended i uh i showed up at at cambridge with uh, a scholarship that i later found out was not nearly enough to pay for what it would cost to go to school there and they had assigned me to a 
well, I think I had applied last minute I had applied and I put down some automotive um, interests in my application because I had a friend who helped me with the application who was real into automotives. And mm-hmm. we're like, okay, we'll just put this in and you can always decide later. And when I showed up, I met my, my thesis supervisor and he said, well, you'll never be able to afford to, to get your degree, but I can double your scholarship if you're willing to work on this project that I've got funded. And if you don't like it, you don't have to give the money back. You can quit later or whatever. And I said, well, it seems as good as anything. So it wasn't like a driving passion. It was more opportunistic. Yeah. And, um, and then I got in a lab. I really liked the people I was working with. It was a a very cool project. You know, we had a, a series of engine bays and we, we, we could talk, talk to a, an automotive engine directly. And so we could, you're sitting in the control room, you could tell the car to do anything you want and then measure the emissions. So it was, it was really very interesting, um, challenging, rewarding, good people. And that was, that was good enough. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't my life's dream to work on it, but. Yeah. So other than your conclusion that we should all be riding bikes instead, (laughs) what else came out of that? Is there anything that us as the general public would love to know or be shocked by that you guys discovered during that research? my work was focused on a new kind of a sensor. It's a high speed sensor for exhaust measurement. Um, and it's in use now. So, uh, you know, maybe the air you're breathing is a little cleaner because we helped to develop some better engine control strategies, but Mm -hmm. the the sensor we built is now being used by automotive companies. It's being used by companies like Volkswagen to, uh, (laughs) to game, to game the system. (laughs) This is the kind of tool that you need to, uh, to do what they were doing. So you're partially responsible for the oceans and oceans of cars sitting in the California desert. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Wondered whose job that was. (laughs) Yeah. That's unfortunate. We can't win them all, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, yeah. so, so those kind of opportunities to, to be involved in that field were there. Um, the oil industry, again, was still of some interest just because of the, um, the opportunities. There was a uh, Schlumberger, the, the oil field service company, has a major research center in Cambridge. And I spent some time there. And it's, it's just like sort of a dream for a mechanical engineer. It's amazing resources to, um, you know, to to do your work of, of developing new products. But I think they had a, a policy. If you worked there every Friday or every other Friday, you had to go to work, but you couldn't work on work. You had to work on your own fun, private oh, side yeah. projects. That's really cool. Nice. So they really tried to stimulate um, creativity that way. Um, they had a program where you could go work in Thailand. And I was like, oh, I could, I could get down with that. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, again, I'm not that into oil, not that into cars. And, um, the opportunity that came up is, um, all, wh- while this was going on, I was, I became a part owner of a bike shop back home. Okay. How does that, how do you randomly become a part owner of a bike shop when you're not in town? Yeah. I, I got good friends. So, um, <laughs> I mean, how does that work? Do they just call you up and they're like, Hey Corey, we bought you half a bike shop. <laughs> yeah. I think there was eight of us that went in on it. And so we all threw some money into the ring. We had, um, one friend in particular was a kinesiology grad was really into human performance and um he really wanted to start a bike shop and we all thought it'd be great to have a bike shop so we went in on that it was called the bike age um and i think while it was running the way we kept the doors open was primarily because we also sold skateboards so (laughs) (laughs) it was a bike and skateboard shop uh bikeage front side skate and bikeage in okotoks (laughs) alberta that's awesome um and And so my friend seemed to be a seasonal business up there Yes. Did you think about that going in? No, I didn't care. They, I mean, <laughs> okay. my friend had a dream. I'm like, yeah, I'll put some money into that. And yeah, you know, now, now I'm, I'm sort of on the inside. I got the t-shirt. I always want the t-shirt. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so were you at that point was cycling just still a, an interest or was it becoming a passion? Like, where were you at in this? Yeah, I was, I was real into biking by then. Okay. So like from high school and through, mm-hmm. through my undergrad degree and, and afterwards, um, you know, just jumping back to when I, I worked as, as an engineer in the oil industry, winters are long, as you noted. So we used to pack up and do van trips all the time. We'd go down to, um, Las Vegas and, um, some crazy trips down to Joshua tree and, oh, yeah. um, a lot of, a lot of winter trips to really do a lot of biking and, and rock climbing. Mm-hmm. So I was real into it when I was studying in England, I was on the cycling team. I raced track over there as well. Got to race on the Manchester Velodrome. That was real neat. Oh, no way. University championships. 
Um, How'd you guys do? Um, you know, I, again, I like to get the t-shirt. So <laughs> I think, I think I have a, a, a team silver medal cause we had a big team. Maybe I qualified for a sprint race or something. Yeah. Um, but it's just, it's racing track is really a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, I did forget to ask one thing we usually do. You mentioned that, you know, from high school when you really got started biking, what was that first bike? Uh, was a, a road bike. It was too big for me. It was a Fiori Modena. Ooh, Modena. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was a, a friend's road bike and he got a new one and I got his and that's what got me into First it was road racing. We road raced. There really wasn't much mountain biking then. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden one summer we all got mountain bikes and started, it was, those days were great. Like hiking boots and, uh, you know, bear trap pedals, yep. uh, the canny brakes, fully rigid. And we were just like, what can you do with these? Like, so we'd, somebody would realize, Hey, you can ride these in a river. So we're like, okay, so we now go and find places where you could ride in a river or you can ride down <laughs> long staircases. <laughs> Probably back then I would have tried to ride down the incline. We were doing stuff like that just because the, the vehicle was so new. It was, it was, there were no videos to watch. Yeah. We just were out trying stuff. <laughs> and does that bike still exist today? Because some of those early mountain bikes were built like absolute tanks. So like, the Fury, that was a road bike. My first yeah, mountain bike first was mountain a, bike. was a Rocky mountain fusion. Okay. Um, that I, I gave that to a friend and I, I'm, I'm sure that's not in existence anymore. <laughs> okay. So it's not still hanging about in your life or in your memory somewhere after nope. a epic disaster or something. No, but I, I, I could, I could tell you some, some other bikes that have had that fate. Oh, please oh, do. Yeah. <laughs> We're all, any event that decommissions a bicycle forever is of great interest to the show. Oh yeah. Well, uh, do, do you want to hear the story now? This was oh, yeah. actually the summer before I moved to England. Um, I remember I'd gotten, uh, I'd just done a real tune up on my bike. I, it was a Rocky mountain thin air. So thin wall mm -hmm. aluminum, a little, Ooh, little yeah. nicer, um, front fork. And, uh, I got, Were I you, had, did you actually have, did that one have like suspended front fork by this point? You yeah. Like a, a rock shocks NDC or something like it that. It was a quadra. Oh, yeah. okay. Elastomer fork. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yep. A little spongy thing. <clears throat> yeah. And it was great. I mean, it was huge. Oh yeah. It, it, massive Im improvements. Um, and, and, and for this one trip I had put on the, a new cockpit and it was that Scott drop in wrap around bar with like kind of built in <laughs> bar ends. Uh -huh. Um, and you know, so it's sort of like new bike day when you put a whole bunch of new stuff on your bike. Yeah. And my buddy and I, we were down in the crow's nest pass. We were going to go hike up to this plane crash and you know, goofy adventures was what, what it was all about with, with my friends. So we rode our bikes up real high. We camped up high near this, uh, plane crash, hiked up a couloir onto a ridge. And we're trying to, um, do a ridge is a ridge traverse, but like definitely not rideable. Right. I had my bike on sort of propped up on sitting on top of my backpack. I had one hand on, on the, uh, frame and I was sort of inching along and scrambling along this sort of knife edge ridge with my bike on my back. And I started to feel nervous. So I leaned into the, the rock a little bit and I, I sort of switched hands. So I leaned in, I switched hands on my bike and, and grabbed the rock. And as I did that, the bike shifted on my back and the, uh, seat post, the seat collar came undone, the quick release got caught on something on my back. And I'll never forget the noise that it made as I was holding the seat post <laughs> and the, the seat post slid out of the frame. <laughs> and I watched, I watched my bike tumble off my back and, and down this, this little cliff and, and out of view. And I'm like, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. And then a few seconds later, I, I see it go whoop, 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 and it's bouncing, oh, bouncing no. down this. And, and by the way, not the direction we were planning to go. No, like uh, down the wrong side of the, the wrong drainage. Side. Yeah, yeah. The wrong side of the drainage. Um, and my buddy had a new altimeter watch. So we, we eventually were able to go down and retrieve the bike. It had fallen about a thousand feet straight down. Oh my gosh. And so we had to, uh, had to hitchhike out of that one. What condition was it in? Was he, any of it salvageable? Well, I'll tell you what, the, um, the seat tube was pretty mashed because the, uh, the seat <laughs> collar was gone. So the, that was completely smashed in the brand new, the brand new handlebar and, and the front wheel were completely trashed. Um, the rear wheel was okay and actually wound up uh, later when I was, I was getting ready to move to England. So I, I replaced the bike, but I was moving to England. I was scared my new bike would get stolen. So I 
revamped that bike. I cut the seat tube down to cut off the bent part, um, put some new, uh, new wheels on it and rebuilt it. And I rode it. I rode it and raced it. I raced actually cross country and downhill races in England <laughs> for three years after that. So oh, wow. shout out to Rocky mountain. That, that was that, that thinner was a, was a burly frame. <laughs> and I think that, that frame still lives. I've got a, a friend I gave it to in England and he's still riding it. That's amazing. Yeah. That was, that was a, that was a happy, sad story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a thousand foot drop. And it went on to still have a racing career. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> You can survive through quite a bit in that. Yeah, that's that's impressive. What what went through your soul as you hear that sound of the? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that was it. Was a well, it was just like complete shock and disbelief. Um, I don't know. I thought about that moment so many times now. It's it it's hard to channel it. <laughs> How long did it take you to get back? Oh, uh, some good number of hours. <laughs> well, it was that day though. Okay, so the the real question is, did your buddies leave you to hike back alone, or were they like, "All right, we still got bikes. We'll see you later." Uh, no, it was just me and one other friend, and yeah, he came back with me, and um, he's like, "Okay, well, I guess we got to go this way." And, and there was a way out. Oh, okay, it just wasn't what we were trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, wow. is that the only bike that you've ever almost put in its grave? Um, you know, I uh, that same bike actually in a downhill race one time, I. Uh, landed real hard on the seat and snapped the seat off <laughs> and i i had to finish i had to finish the race with this broken shard of a seat post uh Ooh, and half oh. the crowd is half the crowd was screaming don't sit down don't sit down and the other the other half is saying sit down sit down <laughs> <laughs> you know who your friends are <laughs> yeah that's but that's yeah that would be the that'd be the the worst i've uh, trashed a frame i think all right and have there been any bikes along during that or those early years that tried to put you in your grave have any mean bikes that are just trying to send you over? You know, I really love all my bikes. Um, I've I've had my share of wrecks, um, and the the one I had last summer was was the biggest wreck to date. So I wouldn't say so. Like from the early days, um, and you know, I I I grew up doing like I mentioned uh, skiing, and mm -hmm. um, I also did a lot of competitive gymnastics when oh, I was a okay. kid. So <laughs> flying through the air upside down is, you know, I'm I'm not that unfamiliar with it, and so. <laughs> I used to always say I know how to crash. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I think I've been overall pretty lucky considering the number of times I've hit the deck. Yeah. And this, I mean, now's as good a time as any, we could leave everybody waiting to hear this story or we could dive right into why you never say, yeah, yeah, you guys go ahead. I'll just be a little longer. Uh, okay. Well, yeah. So that's this summer's crash. Yeah. Um, this was a, a road trip. My wife and I had driven out to uh, Oregon to do some kayaking with a, with a friend. So we ran the Umpqua River a couple of days, and then we were we were packing up to leave on on the last day, and decided to ride our bikes on the Umpqua Trail. It's an Imba Epic Trail. It's real gorgeous old growth forest, completely scenic, and so we could ride our bikes next to the uh, the river that we were kayaking. Um, and we were kind of short of short for time. We were going out as, as there was three of us. Um, myself, my wife, and a friend. And at some point they were nervous about the time. I was a little faster than them. I said, well, listen, you guys turn around. I'll just go out. I'll tag the end of this trail and come back. It was sort of an out and back. Um, and I'll, I'll catch you, catch you up on the way back. We'll meet back at the van camp, break down camp and off we go. Uh, about 20, 30 minutes after that, I was really feeling it. I was finally, you know, I'd, I'd been driving a lot and uh, had been feeling a little bit cooped up and really was feeling the flow. Like finally I'm, I'm, I'm getting that healing that I receive from being on a trail and, and yeah. bike. And, um, the trail, the trail is on a steep side slope and quite overgrown. And I went into kind of a little G out and I kind of pushed the front tire in a bit to try to uh, pop up. And I couldn't see that under the, under the grass, the trail had washed away. So I kind of pushed in to a, to a little G that wasn't there and just lost the front wheel. Um, and oh. came down pretty hard. Um, the first thing I, my, my first conscious thought was, gosh, I hit my face. Cause I did hit my face pretty hard and broke my helmet and glasses. Um, but I had this realization, like usually if I crash, I can lay there for a minute and take stock. And I, I sort of 
realized that I was walking back and forth or pacing up and down on the trail, uh, trying to get away from something. I'm like, what, what, what oh, am I doing? Why, no. why am I not just sitting here? Realized why I, what I was trying to get away from was extreme pain in my shoulder, which was a dislocated shoulder. Oh. <laughs> and I could, I figured that out pretty quickly that it was, um, dislocated. So I, I, very quickly did the math. I'm like, well, there's nobody out here. No one's going to find me. If I sit and wait for help, it'll be, you know, three, four, some hours, who knows of extreme agony. Um, a lot of things flashed through, through my head. I, I thought about that movie where that, that guy was stuck on his own and he had cut his arm off, but oh, I didn't, yeah. I didn't have a jackknife. So I'm like, well, I can't do that. <laughs> uh, what, what am I going to do? And, um, I, I, I first had a, a flash like, oh gosh, my shoulder's definitely dislocated. And I, I haven't had shoulder problems except that I have dislocated one shoulder once before. Okay. Um, and I, so my first thought was, is this the same shoulder and is it the same way that I dislocated it? Um, and I realized it wasn't. So the, it, I realized it was the other shoulder and the mech, the way that I had dislocated my other shoulder was skiing. And it was a weird dislocation where my, um, my humerus, my, my arm bone popped behind my scapula Oh, it, it's called an inferior dislocation. And the only way that I could, it, this, this was, I was skiing. I didn't actually, I didn't actually crash. It was, I was, I was trying to teach myself to telly and I was really doing some aggressive pole plants <laughs> and I pole planted so hard. It had popped my shoulder back. Mm. Oh. Didn't know what was up, but what I did know is if I put my hand straight up over my head, it was less excruciating. So. I did that and then there's no one around and no one helps. So I skied down on my tellies with my, my arm over my head, but this was the back of a basin. So I had to ride the chairlift up with my arm over my head and then oh. I rode down the front of a basin before I, um, I found some medics that could help me. And they're like, Oh, we've never seen anything like this, but we can't help you. Please go somewhere else. Um, and when I got, <laughs> that's no help. I, I got to the hospital at Frisco and they had to look it up. They're like, why don't you put your arm down? They, they hadn't seen it either. It's a very, mm -hmm. very uh, rare dislocation. They said, we're definitely going to have to knock you out to put this thing back. Oh. So <laughs> okay. now flashing, now flashing yeah. back to Oregon, <laughs> I knew that I couldn't put my arm over my head and therefore it wasn't that kind of dislocation. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe there's a chance I could get it back. Uh, another reference point I had was uh, one time riding a, a local trail here. Uh, that connects off Rampart Road, and I won't mention its name. Uh -huh. um, I watched a friend put a, an elbow back in place. Someone dislocated their elbow, and I watched. I watched that happen. I knew it was possible that you could do a field um, reduction, but this was like three people holding and tugging, and yeah. And here I am out. I'm out on the trail all by myself. And then, so the the third piece of information I had that that would help me would be the le the movie Lethal Weapon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Mel Gibson could pop his some, shoulder in and out. So. Right. Some good outdoor science right there. Yeah. So I, I managed to find a tree close enough to the trail. Oh no. And, uh, with, with some effort and a few tries, I was able to sort of Mel Gibson it, it back into place. Okay. And was it basically as it appeared to be in the film, you just kind of slam your shoulder into the trunk of a tree. Is that what you're doing out there? Pretty much. Yeah. I, I, I pulled, I was putting as much traction on it as I could pulling, pulling mm -hmm. on it with my other arm really hard. I was first, I was trying to feel around and be like, where is it? I know it's dislocated. It's, is it broken? I, I, I couldn't tell. I, yeah. I, I, and I'm not, not good enough with it, you know, field first aid. And, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it pretty much was that I, I had the presence of mind cause it's like I said, a steep side slope I had the presence of mind to pick a tree on the uphill side so that if something did happen and I passed out that I wouldn't tumble down into the rocks and then into the river below. Um, All right. So you were thinking ahead a little bit there. So, and I just was like, you know, I got to, I, I, I couldn't imagine not trying to put it back in. I just, I, I didn't actually think I'd be able to, mm -hmm. but there was no choice. It was, as you can imagine, very, quite painful. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So you finally get, so I finally got it back in. Yep. It basically yeah, Chunk, slammed it against a, a tree. Um, so I, I went back, found found where my bike was. And hang on, before mm -hmm. we get too much further, Josh, could you provide us some medical wisdom on I'd like, this? I'd like to, I'd like to hear <laughs> yeah. medical opinion. Uh, well, I haven't done too many reductions myself, but uh, uh, the Mel Gibson approach it seemed, seemed effective in this case. <laughs> I'm impressed that you were able to maintain consciousness 
Because the kind of pain that most people experience through the reduction process, I mean, it's, it's excruciating until it gets back. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. then it, it does subside fairly quickly. It was a lot better after I got it back in, that's yeah. for sure. Um, but I, either when I crashed or when I put it back, I definitely damaged it. I went back and, and so I'm like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk this off grab my bike to, to continue walking. And as soon as I grabbed my bike, it, it popped out again. Ugh. I'm like, Oh man, didn't I just do this? So this time I found a closer tree there. I, I was like, <laughs> I think I know what to do. So I found one, I used one on the downhill side wow. and I knew it would be okay. And so popped it back in. And then, uh, then I sort of strapped my arm up and made sure I didn't touch it for the, for the rest of that day. Um, Not just once, but twice. Yeah. yeah. Back mm-hmm. to back. Oh my gosh. So wait, how far then did you have to walk the bike back? Yeah, so it was it was really about a mile to where I was going to turn around, and there's a bridge there that was mm-hmm. the great turnaround point. So I made the decision to walk down to the downstream to the bridge, cross the bridge, and then hitchhike back to the campsite. And was it a, it was a busy enough road that there was traffic down there, or were you just standing there on the roadside for a while? That's that's a good story too, actually. <laughs> um, so it's it's a logging road, so there was really not much traffic except for every sort of three or four minutes, there would be a monstrous logging truck coming by, no shoulder, um, blazing, blazing hot. Yeah. And, and there was not much, um, there, there weren't many cars going by. So I hitched for a I tried to hitch for a while and eventually I had given up and I said, okay, I'm going to just ride back. It's like six miles. I can just ride one handed and, mm-hmm. uh, ride back to the camp. And I got everything ready. I was just putting my leg over to, to start this was going to be a bad ride back and then uh a van did pull over and then there's that moment is like this panel van with no windows (laughs) is this the last ride i'm gonna take yeah um i'm about to get murdered in the oregon woods really met an interesting character on my way back but it turned out he yeah he helped me out a lot and got me back to the campsite and uh yeah that was it and so we we eventually you know my wife my wife wasn't back yet so she came back. She's like, what are you doing? And why are you all bloody? I'm like, yeah, well, it's, it's actually worse than it looks. <laughs> my, my it's not show. normally how we want to say that. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Um, so yeah, we packed up camp. We actually went and did some more touring. We did some, went and looked at a few waterfalls and, uh, camped out that night. And then the next day was when I finally went to the, the hospital, get an x-ray. I'm like, you know, I think it's back more or less where it needs to be, but we'd like to get an x-ray just to be sure. <laughs> okay. And they told you... They yes, said, Mr. Yes, Sutella, you have messed your shoulder. Back, but you need to go see somebody. Uh, and they, they, offered, they offered to put me in touch with a, a surgeon there, but we made the decision to yeah. drive back from Oregon. So that was, that was a long drive. It was ex- especially long when the van broke down partway back and I had to crawl underneath and put the mm. transmission back in place with, with one <laughs> what? arm. What? Yeah, my, my van had a sympathy dislocation on, on the, <laughs> oh. the ship linkage. <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know, all part of the adventure is t- definitely type two. I can look back and that part of it wasn't so bad. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, we can appreciate that for sure. Yeah. That's stretching that's, the definition uh, of type two. <laughs> I would say that ride was not type two. That yeah, would, that would be three. one that type three. Uh, if I could take yeah. it back, I would, I would not have gone riding that day. <laughs> wow. Wow. And did, did it all get sorted out? Did you see if a doctor and yeah. take care of? Yeah. They it was basically a month later is when I, I got the surgery and they confirmed that it was really quite messed up. There was a piece of the glenoid, which is the uh, socket part was broken off and displaced and actually flipped upside down. Um, they did it all arthroscopically and they showed me some pictures and there's a, it looks like a a nest of climbing rope in my shoulder. There's, it's basically all strung together. Wow. And And, and it took months. I could put my hands over my head. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> his hands are over his head in the blanket fort right now. Can't so even tell July. which shoulder it was. In July. Okay. <laughs> wow. And that yeah, was rough. This is, this is a rough. Uh, it was a rough summer and and uh, early winter. <laughs> we tend to ask on the show, "What's your best day and worst day on a bike?" It sounds like that might have just been the story we heard. Yep, that was not my best day. That's no. for sure. Yeah, yep. <laughs> not your best. Yep, that'd be the single day I wish I could take back uh, above all wow. else. I mean, not bad in a long riding career, but not a fun day. How long had I been real lucky, right? Yeah. Because any time you come off off the bike, Mm -hmm. you could get hurt real bad. So, yeah. 
Well, since we're in the midst of this, yeah. it, what, uh, what kind of best day options do we have out here to, to redeem the low point? Yeah. yeah, I was trying to think about that. That's like tough questions because, you know, almost every day I'm out on the bike is the best day. Um, the current one, I, I can, I can think of some really good days, uh, touring with friends. We, there's a, a route in Canada called the golden triangle, um, bike tour. I remember, uh, day two of the golden triangle just was like on that day. And so was my buddy. And we kind of left the rest of the tour and sort of did a two up time trial for the whole day as you know, mm -hmm. like a 60 mile ride. Oh my gosh. Through, the, through these beautiful mountains and just that feeling like that feeling when you're really, when you're in shape, when you're trained and you can like really push and like dip, dip into that. And, and that all those rewarding endorphins you get when, when things are really hitting. Yeah. Um, that would have to be up there. Usually I would say my, my, my best days would be definitely touring. Oh man. Like mm. being out, like that spirit of adventure that you started with has never really left. It seems. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, just real quick. Another, another fantastic day. We, this actually my, the same friend that, that, uh, I was with when we dropped, uh, dropped my bike real far. We were bike touring around Italy and got the idea to take a ferry over to the Island of Elba. That's where Napoleon yeah. was, was deposed. And, uh, we were really dirtbagging it. We were, you know, touring around and sleeping in like school, schoolyards. And on this one day we were kind of camping in, I don't want to call it a, a garbage, but it was really, it was a, a, a not well-used place, but it was just a magnificent day, like riding around, eating gelato, these beautiful, uh, you know, amazing scenery, talking to people, great food, um, and, and the, and the bike just tying that, you know, the bike is the, the whole thing that ties the adventure together. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely, definitely had some good days bike touring. Does sound incredible. Oh my gosh. Did yeah. you spend a pretty significant amount of time over in Cambridge? Did you explore around? Oh yeah. That? Yep. Yep. I was there for three and a half years and, uh, I, I toured around the British Isles and a lot of, of Europe quite a bit had, uh, Really great rock climbing trip in Morocco while I was over there. Um, oh, man. And did your time in England and then in Europe in general change how you saw bicycles? Like, did that start to make some of what you said in your thesis and other things a little more personal where you're like, yeah, more biking actually does work? Because coming from not just North America, but the Western half of North America, bikes are recreation for some people at best. Mm -hmm. They're not an actual tool to live your life. There's a growing, growing population for whom it is a necessity. Right. Mm -hmm. And then there's some of us that try to, to use bikes for transportation for choice. Um, to specifically answer your question, I think what maybe had a bigger impact on me was just the, the, um, public transit aspect mm -hmm. because, you know, there, there's, you live in Europe, you can go, you don't need to have a car. Right. You can, you can get where you need to go a train. You can put your bike on the train. I think, you know, there is more prevalence of biking definitely. And when I was living in Germany, I, I saw a lot more of that. Cambridge is a, maybe a micro college, everyone there, it's a college town. So everyone's riding bikes. Sure. Um, but yeah, more generally. And when I, li I lived in Germany, um, you could see people using it as transportation, but the real, the biggest impact is, is the public transit side of it. Yeah. I'd say. So let's step back into the story then. This okay. is a great point to get back. How did you get from petroleum industry uh -huh. and a, thesis around automotive emissions. Let's take it from there yeah. to where you stand now. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's a good one too. It's, it's just another go with the flow story. So I mentioned that I had a, a friend who was real into human power measurement mm -hmm. and um, through our shop, the bike age, we were the first Canadian distributor for SRM power meters. Okay. And I'd never heard of them, but my buddy sent me an email and said, Hey, I'm going over to Germany to, to meet with SRM. We're, they're in our shop. Is there any way you could slip over from England and meet me in Germany and come check out this facility mm -hmm. and learn more about it? And I, I had a friend that happened to be driving over that weekend. So hitched a ride, went over, met my buddy in Germany. Actually, we, we drove all around, um, Holland. We went to the tour of Flanders. So oh, no way. We, mm -hmm. we had the SRM car and we were chasing the tour of Flanders, <laughs> which was a great experience. Um, and then yeah, we were hanging out with, uh, with Uli from SRM. My friend actually, he went back to Canada and I wound up, I 
became friends with Uli, got to know him real well. I wound up staying a few more days there and um, got talking with Uli and I was just about finished studying and, and Uli said, well, you know, could really use some engineering help over here. So uh, I walked away from the oil industry and the gas industry and, and, and automotive and um, was like, wow, you could actually work in the bike industry. <laughs> so that was it, like straight out the gate. There was no intermediary job. It was just right out of school. You're like, nope, bikes it is. Here we go. We're going to Germany. Well, it was really more like I could probably get I have a choice of some of the jobs I could get. So that's a good reason not to get one and mm -hmm. kind of take it easy. So it was a little, it was a little bit informal. It was, uh, it was kind of related to the bike shop and, yeah. um, it was, it was very low commitment and, and, uh, high flexibility is what, what drew me there. And then, but then all of a sudden I started to see the opportunities, yeah. um, you know, working in that environment and I, you know, I, I'm working away and in walks Eddie Merckx and, Here's Eric Zobel and hello, hi Mario. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. Um, being in that, I, I was a little starstruck working there, and um, and and the engineering opportunities, re realizing that this is actually a, a a legit thing that you could do. Yeah, and I understand as well that you weren't just working in the bike industry; you were living it too. Because word on the street is you were living in the basement of the SRM factory. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. Okay, <laughs> it's still in Germany. It's a nice factory. Yeah, that, that was in Germany. Okay, okay. Yeah. Now wait, did they have facilities to live in, or are you just like literally sleeping on like stuff in the warehouse? No, no, it was it's it, it, it's it's sort of a joke, but yeah, it, I mean that was the production facility, but uh, it had a real it had a real nice suite in the basement, and I think two uh, residential units upstairs. So, um, it it was it was decent living. It wasn't, it wasn't quite, uh, you know, living in the coal mine. Okay. It's not a bad commute. <laughs> no. Yeah. The commute was great. <laughs> Riding was great. <laughs> so how long did you stay over there then? I was probably for the next two years on and off. I was going back and forth mm -hmm. here and there. I was back working in the bike shop a little bit and, um, applying for some jobs here and there. And then I would, I'd, uh, I'd go back there. So it was about two years and then, well, so, <laughs> I was, I was doing some research, different kinds of research with, with bikes, including I was doing some suspension efficiency measurements using an SRM. So basically pedal up and down a hill, try different frame geometries, see how much energy is consumed, see if you can uh, measure a difference between uh, frame geometries. Um, I was doing that work for Ellsworth bikes in oh, San yeah. Diego. And, and at that time I was living in my van in an avocado grove on the Ellsworth property. <laughs> wow. And we all went out to Sea Otter and I got to, I was on the, the Ellsworth factory team racing at Sea Otter, you know, <laughs> got the t-shirt um, and Uli was there from SRM and said, Hey, I want to make a U.S. office. Won't, won't you join me and we'll drive around Western U.S. and find out where to put the, the uh, U.S. office for SRM. So drove around Western U.S. with Uli for a couple of weeks. One of the places we stopped was Colorado Springs. Uh, I didn't have a great first impression of Colorado Springs. And, uh, I said, no, you shouldn't put it there. I'll, what a terrible place. And, uh, of course that's where Uli wound up putting his place. And <laughs> sure. Now come yeah. full circle, you know, to, to, um, you know, to have lived here now for 15 years and, uh, to get to see, to get to see Uli is kind of a, is a real treat. Yeah. No. So was that, was SRM what brought you here? Did you go ahead and follow Uli to the Springs then? No. Or? Okay. No, I, I told Uli. Well, and it was two weeks in a, a small car, just the two of us, and uh, we, we had a lot of time together and eventually came to the realization that that was a little bit too close. And I said, Uli, <laughs> I'll see you later. I'm out of here. But while I was here on the trip, I got to meet, okay, so I had been in, I'd been in San Diego working at Ellsworth and the sales manager at Ellsworth used to work at RockShocks. So he said, Hey, if you go to the Springs, go talk to these guys at, at rock shocks had just been purchased by SRAM. Uh -huh. So while I was here with Uli, I dropped in to see the folks at, at SRAM. And that's, uh, that's what led me to getting uh, a job at SRAM. And I worked at SRAM as a test engineer for 12 years. Okay. So, so that's I moved what here to work here. for SRAM, nothing yeah. to do with SRM, Comple wow. completely different despite sharing some letters. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And from from that point, you know, you you landed in Colorado Springs, worked at SRM, testing components. Oh, SRAM, which, yeah. Yes, SRAM. Sorry, letters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and where did you bridge from there? Because that's not the project you're in now, right? 
Um, yeah, so I moved, I, when I moved here, I actually moved to take the job at SRAM and I had been living in Vancouver just before that. And I was doing some research with the University of British Columbia. Same kind of thing. We had a, actually on that one, we had an inclined treadmill and I was measuring uh, suspension energy consumption, basically. Um, and I was really um, taken by the North Shore riding styles. So I was able to ride on the North Shore, although I'm not like a real big air rider. I'm mm -hmm. a little more of the goofy adventure, long day kind of rider, but I, I really mm -hmm. loved it. And when I moved here, it was right at the time when they had purchased Red Rock Canyon and there was space allocated for what they called a free ride park. And that's the the space that you, you know, we now see it's got the, that like huge teeter totter right, mm -hmm. um, right there. So yeah. I came here to work for SRAM. I was really interested in, in trails and, and an opportunity to, to help bring some new kind of riding. I had no idea how to do trail advocacy or build anything, but that's when I got involved with Medicine Wheel as a volunteer. And then I really got to say like the opportunity working at SRAM, there's a, an employee out of the Chicago office, Randy Neufeld, who is an internationally decorated bike advocate. He's uh, widely seen as one of the, you know, most influential American bike advocates. Uh, and his, his job was working for SRAM on bike advocacy. So I had a chance to really get know, to know Randy and to, to learn about strategies around, uh, bike advocacy. And, you know, he's, He's all bikes. I was really more interested in mountain bike advocacy, but I learned a lot about the on-street stuff mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then I think the other thing that drew me in this direction was when World Bike Relief started. Mm, yeah. yeah. And that was a, an initiative of SRAM and just seeing that like growing from the, from the start and, and getting involved with that and all the, the power of bicycles to change the world really helped me see that there was a, an, uh, just it's so it feels so rewarding to be working in that that field. So I was doing more and more bike advocacy work and learning from really the best in the business. Um, and so when the opportunity with Medicine Wheel, um, you know, I'd been on the board, I'd been I'd been board president for longer than I could I could remember. And was this like many volunteer things where you start? As just a regular volunteer, and then the next thing you know, you're getting handed more and more responsibility, then pretty soon you're the only guy left in the room. Yeah, I mean, Medicine Wheel has always been a little even more casual than that. So, <laughs> you know, it, it really, when I joined, it was like, hey, get together, let's drink some beer, and we'll talk about what mm -hmm. what kind of trail work we're going to do. So there, there wasn't, there, there weren't really even defined opportunities. It was very, very loose. It was, you know, just figuring it out as we go. So... Um, there's definitely a lot more structure to the organization now, but yeah, I had, I, you know, crew leader, trail digger, um, the guy getting the, going to pick up the, the burritos, um, working with businesses. Eventually, um, where I came to see my strength in the organization was, you know, I, I, I I'm, I'm trained well enough in trail building, but my expertise isn't as great as some of our volunteers within the organization. I, point to guys like Harry Hamill and Doug Bersnell, Jim Schwerin, um, you know, the guys that, that created the Lake Moraine trail, I could really see that I could help get better trails by helping to provide the structure around those guys so that there's, you know, more opportunities for them to design and build trails. So my focus was really on, you know, trying to go to the meetings, figure out who's, who, who are the people, how are these decisions get made? How, how, our public land decisions made, how can we have an influence on that so that we're ready to pull up with the trailer and start digging trail. Yeah. And that's what kind of drew me in. And, you know, again, it's the people like they're, they're just such great people. Um, and then, yeah, eventually people change and come and go. And I was suddenly, I'd been around there for a real long time and no one else wanted to be president. I wasn't there that day and everybody else decided <laughs> I was going to be president at that time. <laughs> that is the punishment for missing board meetings yes, is you will get yep. voluntold to do something. Yeah. And then, and then about three years ago is when we made the decision, you know, I was, I was basically working for free for full, full time for medicine wheel and said, we've, there are so many opportunities for trail and so much, um, responsibility or, or, you know, we, we really have, we really have a chance to do something uh, strong for trails in our region, we need to put more time to it. And so that's when I, I started being a director. So yeah, yeah. now that's my job. That's and we're excited about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
we're gonna we're gonna end up splitting this into a couple different interviews here. Yeah, because <laughs> um, your story is is amazing, and I feel like we just scratched the surface of a lot of it. Um, we want to dig a lot, <laughs> dig a lot further uh, into the trail nice. building process. Yeah, nice, Ooh. nice. Let's see what happened yes, there. Yes. So before we do that, before we transition fully into talking more about trail advocacy, how trails get built, and where they are. We figure there's one really great story to cap off this, and that's that not only have you spent time learning how to help us ride in the woods, you're involved in a little way that you can ride on the streets and drink. Oh, yeah. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about Bike Colorado Springs. It was another organization we helped start. But no, no you, that's way less fun. You want to talk about the Levitator Lounge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, with, with a real good friend, uh, Dave Chadwell from the Dow of Metal, he's a fabricator. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really, he's the guy that built most of Trinity Bar and, oh, and yeah. um, mm-hmm. a lot of things around town. Um, he and I built an eight-person bicycle bar. Uh, it's got a, an awning and a light-up bar top and a good sound system. And, uh, yeah, we, we pedal, but you know, it's not, um, it's a levitator lounge libation station, but it is not licensed for drinking out on. That was my next question. Yeah. Um, (laughs) is it licensed for drinking off the streets? (laughs) Well, you know, private property is a, is a, is a different situation, but (laughs) but what we, what we learned is if you wanted to have a, an on, on street and you wanted to be able to drink, you need like a limo barrier, like a a glass wall between the driver uh, and the passengers who's driving though yeah well eight people pedal and then there's one person driving that's kind of in the middle okay um when he's not making drinks <laughs> no the driver's driving and then you always got to have we usually say we got eight peddlers a driver a bartender and two dancers is how we like to roll <laughs> <laughs> okay so wait, how did this start uh, was it was this over beers like hey you know what we should really do with our weekend we should make a bar yeah over many Many, many days stroking chins, thinking, oh, this wouldn't this be a great thing? Um, you did mention I've, I've been to Burning Man a few times and was really inspired oh, yeah. by some of the art there. I yeah. think uh, what really put me over the edge was I met this guy who had built a two-person human-powered duck, a pedaling duck, and it what? had, a, <laughs> and it had a, a flaming mohawk uh, coming out the top of it. And I just was like, I was just speechless. And he showed me all like, gave me all the the background and showed me how he did it. I'm like, I need to, I really need to take the training and the background I've got and uh, do something special. And so that was the genesis for that. Rather than using your powers for good, you're going to use them for awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Has the Levitation Lounge been to Burning Man? Yeah. Did you truck it out there? Yep. Yep. That was, so we finished it in, it's actually 10 years old this year. We took it to Burning Man the first time in 2012 and back again in 2014. And, you know, it's an immense amount of work, of course, but Mm -hmm. boy, what a blast. Um, (laughs) Just out there pedaling around. Uh, And actually the the second time we went, we organized a parade of bike bars. So I went around and I met everyone because there's, there's several vehicles like Uh that, right? So. Yeah, we we arranged a, a bike bar parade. That was that that would be up there as m- one of my top days riding would be <laughs> pedaling around the playa in a parade of bike bars. Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> Has anyone fallen off the libation station? Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have you run over a patron? Um, the answer to both of those questions is yes. <laughs> um, yeah, and. She- she probably wouldn't like it if I mentioned it, but there is a prominent dirt jumper, former pro dirt jumper in town here who did fall off one time. The, um, <laughs> From too many libations? Yeah, we were kind of hanging out for a while and um, she lost track of spatial awareness and, and fell off. A couple of people have fallen off. Um, we are rel- we've been pretty lucky with uh, serious injuries, but I'll tell you, you, don't, you do not want to get run over by it. Oh, I would imagine mm-hmm. not. I mean, were were you operating the libation station at any of these moments and all of a sudden thump, thump, and then you've got an empty seat? E- yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's, well, at some point we're going to have to see if this can be broken out around town and join, join in the. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I'd love to have you guys on. We, you know, we, we're, we were kind of down for COVID, but we're back. We had it out for the Manitou Mardi Gras. We, we won best crew at Manitou Mardi Gras this year. Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, maybe there's a future Supa mobile interview opportunity going on here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Interviews perfect. from the libation station. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> everybody stay tuned for that in the future. And be sure to join us when we come back for the rest of the story with Corey. 
as Supa continues our journey through how trails get built. If you want to know more about stand-up pedal action, you can check us out online at supa.bike. That's S-U-P-A dot B-I-K-E. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>